chilling greetings everybody thank you so much for stopping by and making paranormal prowlers podcast part of your day those tunes are of course courtesy of the lovely bobby Mackey, and as always i am your host tessa morrow today we find ourselves back in california i decided to do this episode for this week Because as you are listening to this, I myself am in California, wishing it was for happier of times, but I am actually here to celebrate the life of an amazing man, somebody who's definitely missed, that's for sure. Today we are at San Quentin. Construction begins in 1852 and they open in 1854. It is the oldest prison in California. It replaces California's first prison, which, (laughs) believe it or not, was a ship called the Wabin. It was anchored in the San Francisco Bay and held only 30 inmates. You think prisons fill up quickly? Oh boy, I would hate to be a fly on that tiny little ship. Now, inmates from the ship prison, they helped construct San Quentin. They opened the first cell block, which is known as the Stones which is thought to be California's oldest surviving public work. So that's kind of cool. Located on the north side of the San Francisco Bay, it is California's only death row for male inmates. And even though death row females are held at Central California Women Facility in Chowchilla, any executions of the females would take place here at San Quentin. The last execution to be conducted here in California took place back in 2006. With the gold rush came not just opportunity for many men and their families, but also violence and murders made themselves home as well. And they're here to stay. In 1889, the laws changed where executions will take place in California's state prisons. That being San Quentin, and Folsom State Prison. For California's first official state execution, Warden Hell, he was assisted by prison employee John McKenzie and three guards, Williams, Ferguson, and Moons. While this execution went smoothly enough, Warden Hell believed the process could be improved and that they should have an official executioner. And Since the duties of executioner were the sole responsibility of the warden, he creates the chief deputy warden position in 1894. And Amos Lunt would be the first executioner for San Quentin. Amos was born in 1846, and he would go on to join the military in 1864 at just 18 years old. During the Civil War, he was an officer serving with the 3rd Infantry Massachusetts Regiment. In the 1870s and 80s, he was a police officer for Santa Cruz, and he would also at some point 
become the chief of police. So when it comes to law enforcement, this man had quite an impressive resume and background. And it's no shocker that Warden Hale would want Amos to be part of his San Quentin family. Amos Lunt would be the very first executioner for San Quentin starting February 2nd, 1894 and ending October 21st of 1898. The first execution that he conducted took place on February 2nd of 1894. As the warden walked into the doomed man's cell, Lee Singh looked the warden straight in the eye and said, All right, I am ready. Lee, he was a cigar maker who was found guilty for the first-degree murder shooting death of Ali. At 10.35 a.m., the doomed cigar maker walks the dead man's walk up into the gallows. He would be pronounced dead 20 minutes later at 10.55 a.m. The final words to leave the doomed man's lips was, Goodbye, all men. Goodbye. Goodbye, all. The San Francisco call mentions the execution February 3rd, 1894, just the day after Lee drew his last breath. Quote, They extended the steps leading to the scaffold, where the leg and arm straps were adjusted. Lunt placed the black cap and rope around the neck, while Joms held the hand of the condemned. The signal was given, and the trap was sprung. Another execution of Amos Lunt was that of William Henry Theodore Durant, known as the Demon of the Belfry. His crimes would take place at the Emmanuel Baptist Church, a place that many considered a safe haven. He was very familiar with this establishment as he was the Sunday school superintendent. So he had spent a lot of time here. He was very familiar with this area. This was basically like a second home to William. On April 3rd of 1895, William is seen in the company of a very beautiful young woman named Blanche Lamont. They are on the trolley together, and eyewitnesses claim that they were very friendly with one another, sitting very closely as his hands kept tapping on her gloved hand, and he was whispering things into her ear, and she wasn't seeming to mind this. Witnesses share that the two enter the church together, and unfortunately, this is the very last time she's ever seen alive. That same day, a organist for the church says that he sees Durant, and he is clammy and pale, and he's shaking quite severely. Looking at this man, you could tell something is obviously very wrong here. Durant tells the organist that he is sick, and he hands him some money requesting that he go to a nearby store to pick some medication up for him. Well, the organist fills for the man. We've all been there. We've all been sick, right? So he does as he's asked. But when he returns, William seems to be doing a hell of a lot better. No longer pale or clammy or shaking. It's almost like somebody flipped a switch and was like, okay, you're better. So back to Blanche. She's a young woman who is well-liked by many. And her absence, well, it's immediately noticed. Durant goes on to tell one of her friends that she may have been kidnapped and forced to be a prostitute. That's a terrifying thought for somebody who cares for the missing woman. Like, oh my God, please, please don't let that be. The day after her disappearance, 
A woman's rings, along with other types of jewelry a woman would be wearing, are found in Durant's possession. He pawned them off, apparently, to some store, and it is believed that those were Blanche's items. It is now April 12th of 1895, a little over a week after the popular woman had gone missing. It's Good Friday. Churchgoer Minnie Williams tells friends that she is headed over to the church for a meeting and that she would see them later. Shortly after 7 p.m., witnesses see Minnie in a full-blown argument with a man right in front of the church. Anybody want to guess who that man is? Yeah, William Durant. Shocker, right? It was getting rowdy enough where one gentleman stops what he's doing to come between Minnie and Durant. This individual would later testify, saying that William Henry Theodore Durant's manner was not becoming to a gentleman, but that they stopped fighting once he sort of intervened and they both entered the church together. The following day, people, they're decorating the church for Easter. Festivities are being planned, and just this joyous energy of Easter is in the air. One woman, she goes to a cabinet to grab something when she is greeted with an ever so grisly sight, a woman's mutilated body. It is identified as Minnie Williams. Yes, the very one and the same Minnie Williams that Durant was arguing with the day before. Looking at these two women, Minnie and Blanche, they had many things in common. They were both beautiful, young women. And they frequented the same church. And both, right before their disappearance, was seen at the church with Durant. And this would be the last time either were ever seen. A search is conducted in hopes that they can locate Blanche. And praying it's just not too late. But with the fact that Minnie was dead, mutilated, and stuffed into a closet in the church, it didn't look very good for Blanche. But they needed to find this woman either way. They search the belfry, the bell tower of the church, where they find the remains of Blanche Lamont. Durant, he is charged with both women's murders. He is granted a temporary reprieve in 1897, but eventually is executed January 7th, 1898. By this time, several executions had taken place under Amos. This year will be the final year of his role as San Quentin's executioner. His final two executions take place one week right after the other. The first being on October 15, 1898. John Miller, he is executed. Looking at this man, this individual, you wouldn't think that he would be able to do the damage that he had done. Now I know, looking at somebody, you can't say, oh, that guy's a serial killer. Like, nobody lived next door to Ted Bundy and going, that dude is a ferocious serial killer. No. But with this man, it's different. He, he suffered from a deformity that seriously affected his spine, shoulders, and neck. The man's ears were basically touching his shoulders. Think Christopher Lloyd's Uncle Fester, but worse, more severe. So what did John Miller do to gain a date with Lunt, the executioner? He had become somewhat obsessed with a woman 
he came on to her, you know? He tried to impress her, but she denies his advances. This young lady is not the least bit interested in Miller. He did not take this rejection well. I mean, who does, right? But what differentiates many people from just like, you know, licking their wounds and leaving the person alone, he actually starts to threaten her, saying, I'm going to kill you. Well, fast forward just a few short days later, he's still fuming from the rejection from this woman. He sees her on the street. It's fate, right? Oh my God. Yes. I've been thinking about her this whole time. Here she is. I'm going to get her. So he begins wildly chasing this woman. This woman that he doesn't know very well at all. He just, you know, how dare her say no to him. Again, he's fuming. He has a pistol in his hand. He's ready to make that threat that he made days earlier a reality. A cold, hard one. A good Samaritan intervenes and tries to stop the ravenous man. Thankfully, the woman does survive solely because this man intervenes. But sadly, due to this encounter, Miller shoots the Good Samaritan dead in his tracks. Not long after the murder, he is convicted and found guilty. Amos took his job as the executioner here at San Quentin very seriously, as anybody should. It's a very important job. And the fact that this man had some handicaps, especially in the area where the noose would be going around, well, it did not go ignored. He paid attention to the man's age, his weight, his height, and took his deformities into account. And because of this, he did recommend a short drop hanging execution for John Miller. Well, sadly, hmm, this advice from the executioner, mind you, would go ignored. And this was the beginning of the end for Amos Lunt. Ignoring Amos would be a catastrophic mistake. The execution was an ever so brutal one. Extremely bloody and unnecessary, as Miller was nearly decapitated. Something that you would not expect in a hanging execution. I mean, it's happened throughout time, but it's a rare thing. By the time the execution was over, let's just say that you would have thought that he had a date with the guillotine and not the noose. The death of John Miller really changed Amos Lunt. How could this have gone so terribly wrong? And even though his suggestion went ignored, very much to his dismay, I could imagine, this happened on his watch. He was the executioner. On October 21st, 1898, just one week after the botched execution of Miller, a man named George Clark is executed. This would be Lunt's final execution. George Clark had been in love with his sister-in-law and murders his own brother so he can be with her. Now, I'm unsure if she felt the same way and there was some full-blown affair and she knew what was happening or, or maybe she had no clue at all and wasn't interested in him. I don't know. But what is known is that George brutally murders his own flesh and blood Before he is hanged, he spent a lot of time with the prison chaplain, where they sang together and prayed for his soul. Makes me wonder if he prayed for his own brother's soul as well. Local newspapers report this, quote, They passed the time until 10.25 a.m. when Warden Hale interrupted the devotions. Clark waved the reading of the death warrant 
and guards fastening straps to his wrists and ankles. Then they watched to the gallows in the next room, unquote. The trap door, it opens at 10.32 a.m., and George Clark is pronounced dead 10 minutes later at 10.42 a.m. Being the official executioner for California San Quentin really did have an extreme effect on Amos Lunt. During his time here, he had overseen 20 executions placing that noose around the doomed soul's neck, knowing this was the main ingredient that would soon lead to this individual being deceased. And it was hard on him. Soon after resigning, he starts showing major signs of stress, anxiety, and he grows into a rather deep state of depression. Frank Arbogast takes over as executioner for the state. Amos would share with Frank that he believed the men that he had executed were haunting him. Quote, They are after me. There are several under the bed now. A convict is assisting them. It's only a matter of time until they get me. For almost a week, this poor man could barely get any food down his throat. And sleep? Well, it was scarce. He may as well have been one of those kids on Elm Street, staying awake as in fear that the deadly Freddy Krueger would slice and dice them as they dreamt the worst of nightmares. He feared that if he slept, that the executed people would find him and take their revenge on him. At the end of 1899, it is decided by a judge that Amos Lunt be placed into an asylum, really for his own safety. He dies at age 55, September 19th of 1901. Just days later, the Santa Cruz Sentinel reported this September 23rd, quote, months before his incarceration in the asylum, he complained he was haunted by those he sent into eternity. He had been confined to the asylum for more than a year. He was a physical and mental wreck, unquote. Between 1893 and 1937, 215 people are hanged at San Quentin. From 1938 to 1995, 196 people would die via gas chamber. Now, speaking of the gas chamber, before somebody was to be put to death in that bad boy, they first tested it out on an extremely unfortunate farm animal a pig. Sadly, things did not go as smoothly as they had hoped or expected. It took 35 minutes. Yes, 35 minutes for this poor creature to die. They were promised by the company that built this and installed it that it would take 15 seconds to kill an inmate. Imagine their confusion when five minutes goes by and the pig is still alive. What was going through their heads when 15 minutes, not seconds, like they promised, but 15 minutes goes by and the pig, although I'm sure is feeling the effects and hurting like hell, well, it's still not dead. I cannot even fathom what shock they were feeling after 30 minutes goes by And death still has not come. 
It must have felt like an eternity for all involved, especially that poor pig. In 1995, the gas chamber was said to be too cruel and unusual of a punishment. And the following year, in 1996, lethal injection becomes the form of punishment. And in that 10-year span, from 1996 to 2006, they execute 11 people via lethal injection. Now, in addition to the 422 people who have been executed here, San Quentin has done three federal executions, two being on the very same day, the third and final conducted a week later. Samuel Shockley's crimes were shocking to say the least, no pun intended. Maybe a little. Let's rewind back just a little when he was a defenseless newborn baby, his sisters holding him, and they're standing next to a fireplace, and she gets a little too distracted, maybe, with something, unfortunately. And fast forward a few seconds later, and they're both in flames. Brother and sister, they're both injured and badly burned. And a few years after this happens, tragedy strikes. Mom, she dies. He's only seven years old. He then loses another mother figure later on when his stepmother dies from malaria. Soon after this, he begins running away and begins to have confrontations with the law and authority. While in prison, he is attacked and he's badly beaten by another inmate. Due to this confrontation, he does suffer from brain damage. In early 1938, him and an accomplice, they steal a car, rob a bank, and they hold hostage two bank employees, a married couple. He is given the death penalty, which is later changed to life. When he is tested at Leavenworth, it shows his IQ as being 68. That's like around the mental age of a 10-year-old. A few years later, he's tested again, and this time his IQ sadly has lowered from 68 to 54, that being the mental age of 8. While at Alcatraz, Samuel takes part in the Battle of Alcatraz, which lasts two days and results in the murder of two guards and three inmates who attempted to escape, well, they die. In addition to this, 13 other guards, they're injured, three of them quite severely. It is due to their part in the Battle of Alcatraz that Samuel Shockley and another man, Moran Edgar Thompson, are executed simultaneously on December 3rd of 1948. Moran Edgar Thompson he was serving a life sentence with an added 99 years for murdering a police officer in Texas. He was a notorious serial bank robber conducting heists in several states, including New Mexico, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Kansas. He gets caught often enough, but he was a master when it came to escaping jails that were unlucky enough to hold him or their lack of. At least eight different successful escapes were under his belt. Moran and Samuel, well, they die together for the crime at Alcatraz. And the final federal execution here at San Quentin was that of Carlos Romero Ochoa. He was executed exactly one week after the double execution of Shockley and Thompson. On December 10th, 1948, 
He was found guilty for the murder of a federal immigration officer who had caught Carlos smuggling illegal aliens across the border near El Centro, California. A little newspaper clipping reads this, titled, Killer Dies. Quote, Carlos Romero Ochoa, who killed an immigration officer who was questioning him about smuggling Mexicans into this country, died in the San Quentin prison gas chamber today. The execution terminated a frantic last-minute appeal for a stay, which eventually was turned down, unquote. Please be sure to stop by next Monday for part two of San Quentin, where you will hear about some of the most notorious inmates who call this place home and some more of the executions. This week's special city shout-out goes to Monte Vista, Colorado, Southwark, England, Yucaipa, California, Garland, Texas, Zapopan, Mexico, and Radcliffe, Kentucky. Thanks, everybody. It is absolutely appreciated. You guys are just so amazing. Did you enjoy this week's episode? Listen to the others. They're all phenomenal. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to fret, my friends. Just head on over to any of those podcast platforms, such as Spotify, Blueberry, Deezer, CastBox, basically wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcasts lurking in the background. Thanks, everyone, and I will see you next week.